0: Good evening. We are continuing on, and really today we're, we're finishing up the series of lessons we've been doing over the last three weeks. This will be, in essence, the sixth lesson looking at elderships uh, from a couple of different perspectives. We've spent some time in the Old Testament and some New Testament. We've looked at some passages specifically about elders, some passages about uh, leadership in the church. We've looked at some ideas about shepherds uh, from the Old and the New Testament. And then this morning, we looked at some of uh, what are generally probably the most popular passages to go to when, uh, when you're talking about elders, and with good reason. You have a, an apostle who is describing this is the type of man you're looking for when you're appointing elders, and so if we're appointing elders, probably ought to spend some time there. Um, this morning, we talked about those passages, and we talked about, um, hopefully, what came across as some of the, the ways to use those that is helpful to the church as we move forward. One thing that we didn't do a lot of time uh, spend a lot of time talking about, as you go through those qualifications or those characteristics or attributes or whatever word you want to use, um, there are some of them that are fairly easy to define. Uh, I mean, you can you can. Uh, Perhaps have your arguments about how good someone is at living up to it, but we we know what above reproach means. You know. And then again, you can we we can discuss with one another like is this person actually there? He's on a scale of one to ten. He's a seven. You know, or I think he's a six. Well, I think he's an eight. You know, like you you can have those types of debates. But we know what some of the phrases mean. There are other phrases though that are a lot more difficult to even know exactly what the apostle is trying to to signify or to state. And because of that, you have some confusion sometimes when it comes to to eldership. And and you can respond to that in a number of ways. One thing you can do is you can dig your heels in and you can say, no, I have the right interpretation. And everyone who doesn't have this interpretation is ignorant and foolish. And a church is uh, apostate if they go against my uh, interpretation of this qualification. Uh, That might seem extreme. I've literally seen it. Uh, And and so that is one option you have. Another option is to say, well, we don't know. We could never know. So let's kind of ignore that one. And I think we should probably try to find somewhere in between those two things uh, as we go through them. So what we're going to do in the lesson tonight is we're going to look at some of the qualifications that have generally caused more controversy. And hopefully, gracefully, with humility and with patience for me, uh, we can try to get some ideas uh, as as we go through it. Because one thing I can pretty much guarantee you is because of the ambiguity in some of these phrases there are going to be an array of interpretations, even among us probably. And what I'm going to suggest, some of you might agree with, but I'd be shocked if what I say everyone fully agrees with. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm smarter than you or that you're smarter than me. It means that we've read it and we've come to some different understandings. And that's bound to happen when you have thinking Christians who approach the Bible and try to understand it as best as they can. And so when that happens, always... Proceed with humility, uh, value unity, and try to do what's best for the church rather than what perhaps is best for um, for an ego or uh, or something like that and so I'm, I promise I'm trying my best, and uh, some of these are tough and so uh, and so we're going to go through it and we'll see how it works out. Um, One thing that I I want to remember as we go through is we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3 and we're going to look at Titus 1. And these lists are very similar uh, across the board, but there are some differences that emerge. And when those differences emerge, it tells you that there's not one uniform uh, list that was used in the early church that was passed around to all of the congregations saying, this is what you use. It seems that there's a pretty good idea and that uh, churches use that, learn from that, applied that, but also had to adapt that to their needs and to their uh, uh, context and to their own situations as a congregation. And that seems to be what, what even Paul does, even the same author giving his list you're going to get pretty much the same guy in either one because when he talks about the characters, he's talking about the characters of a faithful Christian man. Someone who's lived faithfully for a long period of time and has demonstrated a trustworthiness in his commitment to the Lord. And so... No matter what city you're in, you're going to see that in all of them. But there are some places where he might emphasize in Crete, you have a lot of rebellious people around there, so make sure you get someone who can refute uh, those who contradict. And he he specifically mentions that and says why. Um, There might be reasons why he says different things about uh, the households a little bit in these two lists. When you think about the situation that Crete is facing versus the situation in Ephesus, there are some things that are kind of interesting, you know, with with the church at Ephesus, they already have elders. Uh, they've had elders for a little while, and Paul knows them. One reason he might uh, the lists might vary a little bit is that Paul actually knows who the elders are, and he actually knows some of the men who might make great elders. And so he's telling them, hey, look for these types of people. These are the types of people who are going to, to become great leaders in the church there. And he, he knows their names. You know, Paul actually knows some of these people. Uh, and so that's an important idea to, to keep in mind. When you look at the eldership in Ephesus you see that there are some, apparently according to chapter 5, who are excellent preachers and teachers and elders. And Paul says they're actually worthy of being paid more money to do this because they do such a great job. Honor those people. They're doing wonderfully. And then a couple verses later, he mentions, and by the way, there are some elders who there's like accusations about, um, don't don't flippantly take an accusation without some witnesses behind it but if you get that you might need to rebuke these people in front of all. Well, if you have those two ideas about the same eldership, uh, that means there might be some issues there to keep in mind when you're considering who this eldership is. And when you look at some of Paul's words to the eldership back in Acts chapter 20, he warns them that from among themselves, this is the church at Ephesus, their elders, that there will emerge uh, wolves that will come not sparing the flock and and to be on guard and to, to be cautious about that. And so there are some real issues going on with the eldership at the church at Ephesus. The churches in Crete, um, we don't really know anything about how much time Paul was there. Uh, we don't really... Like, that's a, that seems to be a context that was written... Uh, a book that was written after the close of the book of Acts, and we don 't have a lot of historical information on it we don 't know if there were any elders. He says, Appoint elders if you look at what the way that it 's worded, this is his mission there in Crete. Um, this is titus 's mission. Chapter one of verse five says, For this reason, I left you in Crete. So this is your mission. This is your reason for being there. that you would set in order what remains. Perhaps some things that didn't get finished. And that might be kind of the second half of the book. You learn what some of those things are. But then he says, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he goes on to give his list of what what he directed him. And so this is Paul saying, "Hey, I want you to go to all these different cities that are in Crete and appoint elders." Now they might not have any elders, and so some of the things that he mentions there might be unique to that situation because it's it's a very different situation that you have uh, than you have in Ephesus. So keep that in mind. Um, also. One thing that I think is uh, noteworthy, and you know, I don't know if it's even too important to mention because you pick up on it as you read through, but there are some things that he doesn't specifically say um, this is a command that you have to do this, but it is the basic assumption that pops up in each of these qualifications lists about the elders. And basically what, what that means, he's talking about the patriarchs of a family. He's talking about the, the, the father who's married, who has children, they're living in the same household, and this guy is the one ruling the household. Um, so as you read through this, there are some cultural differences between their societies and our societies, particularly with regard to who the patriarch is, what the patriarch's responsibility is. Um, and so he doesn't you know, necessarily go to say, you have to have children. But the assumption as you read through is that this guy has children because he mentions them. And he mentions what type of father he's supposed to be. And so if you're the patriarch, the head of a household, then you're going to have children. You're going to have a wife. And that, that's part of your that's core to who you are. Um, and so just like the elders in Judaism were the heads of their households uh, when he's talking to the church. He's looking at the men who are the heads of their households. And uh, so that's, that is behind a lot of who he's talking about here in, in these passages, and it'll pop up in a lot of these qualifications. Um, and so I think that's important to note as well. Um, one word of advice that I think uh, all Christians who use these passages need to remember is uh, sometimes we can privilege some of the qualifications over other ones. Um, And we can do that for a number of reasons. One reason might be we're good at that, and so we like people who are good at that. You know, if if that's my strength, I want it to be your strength. And so that happens, you know, all the time in the Bible. But one other reason might be it is so much easier to apply something specific than something general. So if I were to say... um, don't, don't use your speech to cause harm. Don't, don't say bad things. Okay. That's fairly general. Um, We could, I mean, Paul says things like that, not to use abusive speech and that. And, uh, and when we say that, we can still kind of find ways to do that, but just justify it. You know, there we can, we can still sometimes gossip because well, does this technically count as gossip? No, I'm just saying it as a prayer request. You know, just keep this person in your prayers. But did you know? Um, you know, like you can, you can turn, you know, gossip or abusive speech into something that sounds more spiritual. Um, but if I were to give a list of like eight bad words and say, don't say these eight words, it's pretty easy to avoid saying those eight words. That's very specific. Um, sometimes if it's something that you can Very specifically defined, that ends up taking priority, which is why in a church building you're much more likely to hear gossip than a bad word even though like biblically gossip is specifically mentioned as something you shouldn't do in bad words none of them are listed in the bible it's like we've come up with our own list culturally uh but but we have a list and so as long as you have a list you know exactly what to avoid saying gossip isn't quite so so easy and so you can you can still massage vague things and still do them um and so that's why i think you're much more likely to see churches sometimes where you can have elders who, he might be quarrelsome because, you know, exactly how do you grade that? He might be uh, not quarrelsome about everything, maybe about a few things, but if I agree with him and I like him and he's quarrelsome about my issues, he's not quarrelsome. He's just standing for the truth. You know, like you can define that in, in a way that, that is good. Um, but in those same churches, you would not find someone who had a son who wasn't a Christian. Why? Because that one, you can put your finger on it and it's specific, whereas this one is more vague. I'm going to caution us not to, um, not to prioritize specific rather than vague. And one of the reasons why is because sometimes even the specific ones aren't quite as specific as we think they might be. Sometimes even the ones we think are so clear they're not actually as clear as we want them to be. And so keep that in mind as we go through uh, as well. So let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, I have just a couple stops along the way where we'll, we will discuss in a little bit more detail um, what some of the controversies perhaps are about this and what, uh, what my thinking on the passage is. Um, and then you can, you can take that for what it's worth as you, uh, as you proceed. Uh, so chapter 3 and verse 2 says, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and stop. (laughs) Um, So that phrase right there, the husband of one wife, is one that uh, it causes controversy in a lot of churches because there are a lot of questions you can ask about that. Um, What about someone whose wife died and then he remarried so that he has had two wives? What about someone who was divorced and then remarried, and so he's had two wives. What about someone whose wife died, and he never remarried, and so he's not married? Or someone who never married at all, or, or you go down the list, and you start asking, okay, so how does that phrase, husband of one wife, apply in all of these different situations? Um, and what is fascinating to me is how confident some people are And their understanding of that passage. Uh, I I know of a situation, in in fact, well, I know of a situation where there was an elder whose wife died and he was told within a week that he is no longer an elder at that church. Uh, by a member said, you need to know that this means you're no longer an elder here. Why? Because he wasn't the husband of one wife. You know, that was, and uh, and he said, okay, is that really the right way to respond? And is that really what the passage is even saying? So one thing that we should know about uh, this passage, and this is just a little translation issue, um, it is impossible to translate without interpretation. Interpretation is a part of translation. And so some of your Bibles Um, In fact, the English Standard Bible, I I know, does this. Um, It has its translation, but it knows that that is an interpretation. Uh, And so it has a footnote at the bottom that lets you know another translation, which is an interpretation. And so one thing you should know about this passage right here is it's actually just three words in Greek. And uh, the first is the word one. The second is the word woman or wife. So that's one of the, your interpretation issues is because the word for woman and the word for wife in Greek are the exact same word. And you don't know by looking at the word whether you're talking about a woman or a wife. You only know that by looking at the context. The next word is man. Same problem. You don't know whether that word means husband or man based on the word alone. You have to look at the context. Now, I think this context, one woman man, or sorry, one, yeah, one woman man probably is talking about uh, a one-wife husband. Like, the husband of one wife, which is why they translate it that way. But there's not a verb anywhere in those three words. There's no phrase like, is the husband of one wife, or has been the husband of only one wife, or will be the husband of only one wife. There's no tense to it. Uh, So it's not like going back, he has only ever had one wife or anything like that. It's just the word one wife, husband, or one woman, man. And so to read that and then start asking questions about, well, what about a widow or a widower or or these types of situations? uh, There's nothing in those three words that addresses that question Uh, or even about a divorce and a remarriage. These words don't really go back into well, what has happened up to this point. It's just three words with no verb and no tense. One woman, man. And one thing that's fascinating about it, especially when you're talking about a widow or, or a widower, is those three words in a slightly different order appear again in First Timothy. When you look at First Timothy chapter 5, look at verse 8. Sorry, uh, verse 9. This is talking about widows that are put on the list. And we don't have time to talk about what it means to put a widow on the list. But, uh, but uh, he's given a list of the types of things to look for. And uh, verse 9, he says, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. And then my Bible says, Having been the wife of one husband. And then it mentions having a reputation of good works, and she has brought up children. And then it gives this list similar to the list we're reading right now, a list of qualifications. But notice that phrase, having been the wife of one man. That's what my Bible says. That is a translator really trying to help you out. Because the words having been are not in there. This is a one man woman or a one husband wife. What that means is it's the exact same phrase. Uh, The first one's talking about a man, this one's talking about a woman. But this is talking about someone we know is a widow, that her husband has died, because he's talking to widows here. And and so that means that phrase, like just in two chapters, applies to a widow uh, in a list of qualifications that Paul is giving. And so you would think, oh wow, that's kind of surprising. If I were just told, hey, uh, uh, one wife, husband. I might think, well, he has to be a husband. But you keep reading, you find out that phrase is so vague, Paul even applies it to widows. So could it apply to a widower as an elder? Grammatically, it seems like it can, like in the way Paul uses it and contextually within this very same book, it seems like it can. And so now we realize, oh, so what does the phrase, if that phrase can apply to someone who's not even currently married, what does that phrase mean? And there are a number of takes that people have at it. Um, some people think that it means someone who has only ever been married to one person. Uh, that's not in there. It, like, it doesn't exactly say that. It says a one-wife man. Wife, uh, man. Um, and so, some people think that uh, it means that it just rules out polygamy. Basically, one is the key area of emphasis there. Uh, one of the problems with that interpretation is that it does seem that polygamy was very rare and perhaps illegal in a lot of uh, ancient cultures at the time this were written, like uh, in Ephesus. Uh, I don't think polygamy was common at all. So it seems strange to make a, quali- a qualification just uh, ruling that out. What I think the passage is basically saying is a man who is committed to one woman, uh, meaning He's not someone who you would think of as an adulterer. He's not someone who you would think of as a fornicator. He's not someone who's chasing other women. He's someone who has lived his life as a, a trusted, um, you know, faithful spouse. Uh, and uh, that is the, the key idea of it. And you might say that and say, yeah, but that's true for every Christian. You know, like every Christian's supposed to, like that wouldn't set him apart from any other Christian man. And I would say, I mean, yeah. Like, that's right. You read through these qualifications, and every other Christian is supposed to be temperate, prudent, respectable, and hospitable. Every other Christian is supposed to um, not be addicted to wine and to be peaceable. Like, like, these are qualities of regular Christian people. And and so I think the idea of being a one-woman man is the idea of not being a fornicator, not being an adulterer, not being a polygamist, certainly, being someone who is committed to one wife. And even if that spouse dies... If you're committed to that person, uh, if you lived your life committed to that person, it seems to still apply based on what happens in chapter 5. Those are some of my thoughts on uh, that. Again, read it for yourself, but know that it's hard to, to be confident about a whole lot when you're only talking about three words, uh, one woman, man. So, uh, that is one of the qualifications that seems to, to throw some uh, some uh, hostility into the water, and, and hopefully we can realize that it is vague, and it doesn't answer all of those questions. And so, as churches proceed, you need to kind of take things in a case-by-case basis, and uh, with wisdom, and with a lot of prayer, and with the Community and with the current eldership, make some decisions about what you're going to do with that. But try to make sure you're finding someone who is known for commitment to their spouse and uh, someone who you can trust is is uh, uh, you know not a, a monogamous you know someone who's not going after other people. Um, so I think that is the the main idea there. So you continue reading with uh, verse two. Husband of one wife, then temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's an interesting one, also able to teach. Um, a lot of times when people think about able to teach, um, I think sometimes we have a specific view of what that looks like, which is standing up in front of a Bible class and teaching. I do think that elders in the early church uh, were. People who were responsible for a lot of the teaching that went on in the church. When you get to chapter 5 and verse 17, I referenced this passage earlier. It says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so you see there that there are elders who they're ruling well and they're preaching and teaching. But you also get the impression from that that there might be some elders who are ruling well, but they're not... uh, constantly preaching and teaching. And that's not a major part of it. One thing that I think is important when it comes to able to teach is there are a lot of different ways and contexts in which somebody can teach, and it's not all standing up in front of a Bible class. Sometimes ability to teach happens when someone's going through a hard time and you're sitting together over coffee and they need wisdom and advice, and you as an experienced Christian who has been through a lot and loves Jesus and has uh, spent time studying the scriptures, you can walk them through some helpful ways forward. Uh, Sometimes ability to teach isn't always uh, the most official teacher setting, but you have wisdom based on scripture to impart and you can do that. Uh, I think that is, would certainly qualify one as able to teach, even if they're not a great public speaker. That's, this doesn't say a great public speaker. It says able to teach. And uh, and so I think that that is an important consideration. Also, if you're not someone that can I would say an important part of being an elder is you should be able to impart some teaching and some wisdom, though. Uh, That does seem to be a a central part of what an elder does. And so that's why I do believe that's an important uh, idea. And a similar idea is repeated for the church in Crete, which talks about loving the word and being able to encourage and healthy teaching and refute those who contradict. Uh, That seems to be a central responsibility that elders have, to know the word and be able to be a source uh, of learning for other people. Um, Keep going through. In verse 3, not addicted to wine. Okay, that's an interesting one also. Um, So the idea of being addicted to wine. Um, So we... we, we talk more about addiction, probably, than they did 2,000 years ago uh, when you're talking about wine. Uh, so the, the word that's used there, um, it, it's, addiction might be kind of an anachronistic uh, definition of it. But the basic concept of the word is someone who's with wine. Uh, someone who, if you're looking at this person's life, and uh, when you see them, is wine a part of the picture that you have? Are they, that's, Some Bibles uh, translate translator as addicted to wine. Some translated as drunkard. Um, there is... Uh, it's the word parable. And this is a helpful way of thinking about it for me. Uh, the word parable, it's parabole, uh, which is the word uh, beside or with, and the word to throw. And so I think that basically the idea of it is the, a parable is you take a, a story and you throw it out there and people by looking at that story, can see the, the spiritual kingdom truth behind it. You know, it's, you, you throw it out there and people can see it from that. The word here is paraoinos, or paraoinos, which is uh, basically that same beginning, but with wine. And so if you were to look at wine... What do you see with it? (laughs) If an elder is the first thing that pops into your mind, that might be a problem. Uh, It might be someone who spends his life too associated with wine, to where when you see wine, you think this elder. Uh, That's why it's translated as drunkard in some places, or addicted to wine. Um, It seems to be that's a way of life, a characteristic of this person, as you see them with alcohol. And that's not the way it should be among an elder in the church. In fact, when you look at the list of deacons... um, Wine is something that is warned about in both of these categories. Uh, Among deacons in verse 8... It says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. And this is a little different. Uh, for one thing, it adds the word much, which, uh, which you know <laughs> raises some possibilities. No, uh, but uh, it does add the word much. Uh, and also the word for addicted is a different word in Greek. Uh, it's more, this is a word that's used a lot more common. Peroinus is not used very much at all. Uh, and so it's harder to define. This is a word that sometimes is translated as like hold fast or uh pay attention to or beware and it's saying someone who pays attention to a lot of wine all the time someone who's like that's what their eye immediately goes to uh again that's going to be the idea of someone addicted to wine of someone who uh they can't get through their day without thinking about looking at holding fast to a lot of wine Uh, and says you don't want people like that um but that seems to be um what what the prohibition is you don't want church leadership uh to be your drinking buddy (laughs) you don't want to look at them as in uh see the association with alcohol, because alcohol has destroyed a lot of lives. And especially for people who are perhaps leaving that behind to enter into the church, that could be a dangerous thing for them. Um, And so uh, addicted to wine is mentioned on there. Uh, Violent, uh, not violent, but gentle. Verse three continues, peaceable, free from the love of money. And then we'll get to verse four. And it says, uh, he must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? Uh, One thing that's interesting is that word household is repeated again in verse 15, where he says that, I write these things to you that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So the church is a household. It's the household of God, and uh, each uh, patriarch of their family has their own household that they're managing and that they're caring after as as a father. And so he's saying, as a father to uh, your own household, demonstrate the abilities that will lead to a loving fatherly relationship with the church, or the other household of God. Uh, so your household becomes a microcosm of God's household, and and show the the proper leadership qualities there. One thing that is. Uh, I know has caused controversy. Uh, I've, I've seen it. I've uh, been a part of it. Um, is there in verse uh, verse 4, where it says, keeping his children under control with all dignity. I know some uh, who they read that and say, okay, so it mentions him having children. And so that means he must have children. It also means he must have more than one because children is plural there. And so if he has a child not qualified. If he has uh, two children, that makes it work, two or more. Um, And so you look at that, you think, okay, um, I think sometimes we're trying too hard when we start making those types of hair-splitting decisions. Uh, One passage that comes to my mind is, again, in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a helpful chapter for understanding some of the things here in chapter 3. But in chapter 5, look at verse 4. This is, again, talking about widows, who uh who should the church help and who uh you know has family who can care for them and it mentions uh helping widows who are widows indeed in verse 3 but verse 4 says if any widow has children or grandchildren they must first practice piety in regard to their own family so what he's saying is basically if a widow has children they should take care of her well what if she only has one does he say you're on your own mom uh no, just because it's plural doesn't mean that the singular uh, doesn't count. And, uh, and so I think that's true even here with the qualifications of elders. Uh, when he's talking about uh, managing his household well, the way he raises his children, I don't think that's saying you have to have at least two or anything like that. I think it's saying in your household, how have you, how have you raised your kids? Well, you know, whether whether you have one or more. Um, and what he says in verse 4 is keeping children under control with own dignity. Now, again, this is an interesting verse because it seems to have in mind that the children are still in the household. And one thing that separates their culture from our culture is a lot of older men who would be considered elders. Their children are out of their household. That's not everyone, by the way. Uh, I think I, I think you could probably you would. St- you can still be old enough to be an elder while having children in your household that's that so you don't have to be like ancient <laughs> you know to to be an elder but uh but when children live their entire lives in your household and you have grandchildren in your household some of these verses take a different dynamic than our household where kids turn 18 and they're out of the house you know or you know I, sometimes uh but uh but is, Every household is different, but you go through it and you see that the word household right here, um, it seems to imply that there's a lot of people living in it. Uh, he probably has multiple children. They have their families. He has his wife, and like that, that's the picture. And he's saying, does he rule that well? And again, you might also have servants there, and you like all of that would be considered a household. Does he, is he a good manager of the household? Um, what we have sometimes done is we take that word household And if it's a man who it's just him and his wife and they don't have any kids, they say, well, how has he in the past managed his household? What are his kids like? You know, and and we ask that question. But one thing that's interesting, and this, again, goes back to to adaptation of it, that is, uh, in verse 4, manages his household is present tense. It's not talking about what he did in the past. It's talking about, is he doing a good job? But if you don't have a household to manage now, like a large one, uh, if it's just you and, and your spouse, then, then like, it depends on your spouse, but it should be pretty easy to manage. Uh, but but you look at that and you realize there's just immediately in defining terms, there are some difficulties that arise uh, in just defining it. And so we kind of adapt it some and we ask, okay, well, what about how has he managed his household when it was just him? and his kids you know, before they left the house. And I'm not saying that's an inappropriate thing to do, but we do need to be aware when we're doing something other than what the Bible actually talks about doing. Maybe that is a good question to ask and a good way to get wisdom and a good way to, to ask yourself whether or not he's above reproach. If people are reproaching the type of father he was 20 years ago when his kids were in his house, you know, maybe that's something to, to factor in. But we need to be careful that we don't act like this is saying that he never mistake, had made a mistake as a father with his kids back then. It's asking how he's managing his household. And since we don't really have households like that, it's a more difficult qualification to apply today. Uh, and so we have to make some, some massaging to it to make it fit something. Uh, one question that uh, often comes up, though, if you want to turn with me over to Titus. And we'll close by looking at this one. Uh, This is in Titus, um, and it's related to the idea of managing the household well, and particularly the children. Um, Titus chapter 1, in verse 6, says, If a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, and then it goes on with the list. That phrase, having children who believe, is another uh, one of those hairy areas. Um, So again, I know some people who say, well, okay, say he has five children and one of them believes. Well, that doesn't count because it's plural, children who believe. So he has to have at least two. Um, Okay, I don't know that that's really the intent of this passage, to count up the children, see how many of them we would say believes, and, uh, and then make sure it's a plural number, and then say, this guy's qualified, this guy isn't. Um, one thing that we should keep in mind is even that translation, children who believe, is an interpretation of some words that don't have an obvious meaning. So one of those words is the word belief or faith. Uh, it could be faithful children. And that word faithful could have an array of meaning to it. Um, so, for example, if you hear that someone is a faithful spouse, a faithful husband, you wouldn't immediately think, oh, that means he's a Christian husband. You would think, oh, he's faithful to his wife. Like, he, he is uh, someone she can depend upon. He is someone who uh, isn't cheating on her or running around. He's, he's a faithful spouse. Um, here, I think it's very possible... That what he's saying when he says having faithful children is the children who are in your house, they honor you. They listen to you. They are faithful to you. They do what, uh, what you expect them to do. He qualifies it in the very next phrase by saying not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So, like, have children who are faithful. They're not out there, uh, you know, uh, destroying lives. or They're not out there riotous. They're not out there causing all kinds of problems and bringing a shame on the church. But they are children who are faithful. And, by the way, if you're talking about specifically Christian children, there's nothing like that in 1 Timothy 3. And so if that's how you define this, then it seems like it's a, an interpretation that might have bit, had meaning in Crete rather than Ephesus. Now, I will say, I do think that's a legitimate possibility for the meaning also. It might be saying, I want his children to be part of the Christian community also. Uh, For the church at Crete, that might have been something that was important uh, for their spiritual growth, important for the families there, important for uh, community being able to see multiple generations within the community of faith and within the church. And so he says, these children need to be Christians. But The words don't actually demand that interpretation. And if you want to make the two passages say the same thing, then basically what it's saying is he manages his household well. His children are faithful and they listen to him. They're not accused of dissipation. They're not accused of rebellion. They're not causing a a dark cloud to hang over the church because of the way that his children act. I also think that it's probably talking about the children who are in the household of the father because most of the children were still in the household of the father. And so... As we go through here, there is a lot to untangle. Uh, there is, you have a lot of interpretive options. Uh, I tend to think some of them make more sense than other ones, and I've tried to present those. But even as you go through, there are cultural differences that make it difficult to take a straightforward one-to-one. What was written to them is exactly what we'd apply to us now um, because a lot of the candidates we'll be looking at might not have children still in their household, or they won't for long. You know, some of them might. Uh, but, uh, but there are sometimes things that we read with certainty into these texts that the texts aren't actually saying. And I would caution us about doing that. But I would say, as we uh, bring it to a close, and sorry for keeping you a few minutes late. Blame lads to leaders. Um, LAUGHTER uh, When you're looking for an elder, look for someone who's been a godly, faithful Christian for a long time. Look for someone who, whether they're with their home or at the church or at the office, is the type of person who uh, obeys Christ and represents this church and uh, and our faith well. Look for someone you trust. Look for someone who loves you. Look for someone who, if you're going through a hard time, you would trust that you can go and talk to them, and they would pray for you, and they would take it seriously, and they would shepherd you, and they would try to help. so many of these qualifications, I think pretty much everyone we read, is about facilitating trust. The reason you want a person like this is because the flock needs to trust the person who they're going to as a shepherd. They need to trust that you have their well-being. You need to trust that you're competent. They need to trust that you love and are faithful to Jesus. And so when you have a person who's like this, that's an easy person to trust. And they've proved it. They've proved it throughout their lives. And so I think that's what we're looking for. And uh You won't find perfection, but I think you can find someone who's godly, who you can trust, and who embodies uh, the characteristics that we've been reading about. Uh, If there's anyone here tonight, if you have sin in your life that you would like to repent of, or if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian, uh, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.